and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this on Wednesday, March 22, 2023. In the previous edition of the program, we took a look at the life of the prophet Daniel to consider what lessons we could learn from his life about how we can be those who are full of visions and revelations from the Lord, how we can really give him a way to speak to us through his word so we have visions and revelations that we can pass on to God's people today. Because Daniel's just an excellent pattern for us in that regard. And we should seek to be that kind of person. And I mentioned that verse from the book of Proverbs, I think it's chapter 29, when there is no vision, the people perish. So the Lord needs people today who really have uh, seeings from his word, from the scriptures, uh, where the scripture is really alive to them, who can pass along visions to God's people. And as I say, Daniel is just an excellent pattern for us in that regard. So it's very, very worthwhile to consider, consider that, I felt. So now in this edition of the program, we want to go on and begin to consider some of the actual visions that Daniel saw. And in particular, we want to look at the vision of the great image in Daniel chapter 2 in this program. The vision of the great image. And that really is it's just a remarkable prophecy uh, to consider. And after Daniel saw this vision, after the Lord showed it to him, he said that God had revealed to him the king's matter. The king's matter. And that's really what this is. It's the king's matter, the vision of the king's matter. Because it's not a vision of Christ. It's not a vision of the church. It's not a vision of, of the work God is doing on the earth today to carry out his purpose. Instead, what this vision shows us is the arrangement God has made for human government until the Lord returns. And so in that sense, it really is the king's matter. It's the matter that belongs to the earthly king at any given time. And it, it's, it's remarkable because this prophecy has been fulfilled in every detail. It was made, this vision was given roughly 2,500 years ago. And it's just astonishing how it's been fulfilled. And, and so when we look at this vision, it will very much strengthen our faith in God and our faith in his word. Like it says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, that God is the one uh, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. It's really so. Uh, when we see this prophecy and how it's been fulfilled, we'll really have a much stronger faith in the Lord and in his word both for the things that have happened in the past and for the things the Bible tell us, tells us are going to be happening in the future. And that's a big reason why it's so important for Christians, for believers, for believers today to have a basic grasp of biblical prophecy. It really will strengthen our faith in these difficult times when we see how prophecies have been fulfilled already. But another reason to really have a basic grasp of biblical prophecy is that it helps us to see what our place in the world is today and what our hope should be in the Lord. And just to, to summarize briefly what this vision is about in, in Daniel chapter 2, it's this great human image. It's great. It's almost like a statue. And as Daniel interprets the vision, we find out it, it depicts the four empires that will reign on the earth until the Lord returns successively. Well, later in the book of Daniel, there's a corresponding vision. Again, it's a vision that shows us these four same empires. And yet, in Daniel chapter 7, it's not a human image anymore. In Daniel chapter 7, the way these empires are depicted, 
are as four ferocious wild beasts that just tear up the, the earth and, and devour everything. Well, why, why are they depicted in these two different ways? The reason is the human image in Daniel chapter 2, that's what the king saw. The Gentile king saw this great image. And when, you, when Daniel saw this image in, in, in the dream, he says it was this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Well, that's how human beings look at human government. It's this great, awesome thing. It's splendid. It's full of majesty and uh, uh, pomp and ceremony sometimes. That's the outward appearance of human government. That's what the king saw. But the prophet of God saw the real nature of human government. That was the difference. He saw the real nature. No, it's not splendid. No, it's not awesome. It's not really even human. It's beastly. It just destroys everything. It just tramples the whole earth. Unless God intervenes in his mercy, uh, as it seems like he has done in America, uh, to provide a government that is at least somewhat more tolerant and somewhat more benevolent than these other forms. But that really takes some divine intervention. In general, the earthly governments are going to be these beastly and uh, uh, cruel systems that just trample the whole earth. And that's the real nature of human government. And so... As the believers in Christ, we should realize we don't want anything to do with that, that kind of system. What it really shows us, these images, is, uh, is that man today is not capable of ruling as a human being. Ever since the fall, man has really lost the ability to, go to govern himself. And it's going, that's playing out now in human history. And it will continue to play out until the Lord returns. So again, as believers in Christ, we should realize that's not where my future lies. That's not where my hope lies. My hope is in the Lord's return. But secondly, what we see from these uh, visions, both in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, they show us how the human system of government is going to end. In Daniel chapter 2, it says the, uh, the great image gets struck on its feet by this uh, stone. And then it becomes like the chaff on the summer threshing floor and the wind blows it away and there's no trace of it left. It's completely gone. That's the great image in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, these beasts arise one after the other. And then the last one, it says he's slain and thrown into the fire. That's the end of human government on the earth. And then Christ comes to establish his government that's never going to end according to these visions. And so again, that should tell us as the believers in Christ, we should not set our hope on any earthly future because there is no earthly future in the end. In the end, it's all going to end. It's all going to be destroyed. And if we really allow these visions to speak to us, we will have a much, much clearer view of that and a much clearer re realization of the fact that we need to be those today who really are standing for the Lord. So as believers in Christ, we really should have some basic grasp of biblical prophecy. Now, I've been helped recently as I've begun to study prophecy a little bit more seriously myself by the writings of G.H. Pember, and I've referred to him a number of times already in, in previous episodes. I'll, I'll quote him a few times in this program. And one quote he has that I really appreciate, this is at the beginning. He has a four-volume uh, set uh, on biblical prophecy called the Great Prophecy Series, which is, uh, again, very, very helpful. I've gotten so much help from that. But he begins that whole series on biblical prophecies with, it, with this statement. The Supreme God has deigned to give revelations whereby he seeks to communicate his purposes to men 
and thus by a gentle process to bend their minds to his mighty and irresistible will. Nevertheless, myriads of professing Christians are content to reach the end of life in total ignorance of these gracious disclosures, while accredited ministers of Christ are too frequently unable to expound them. And it's really so. Uh, So many Christians don't really have even a basic grasp of biblical prophecy, and that's one reason why we have such a, a weak testimony among the unbelievers today, because we ourselves just are not that clear about what biblical prophecy tells us, both concerning the past and the future. So we don't want to be that type of Christian. We want to be someone who does have a basic foundational grasp of these marvelous prophecies. And we shouldn't feel either that the study of biblical prophecy is beyond us. The Apostle Paul, in his letters to the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, he ends every chapter with a reference to the Lord's return. Every chapter, except for the last chapter of Second Thessalonians. Every other chapter ends with a reference to the Lord's return. And it was clear even when he was with them, he was talking about these things and trying to help them understand these things. Because in, in, First Thess- in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he's talking about uh, the Antichrist, the rise of this last of, of, of all the, the world rulers. And he says to them, as he's talking about these things, he says to them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So the Apostle Paul was talking about these matters to very young believers. He felt it was very important for them to know this for the same reasons that I've been uh, mentioning already in this program. So, so we shouldn't feel this is beyond us. We, we do need to take a little time and consideration. But as I say, it's so important for us to have a basic grasp of biblical prophecy. Now, there's one thing I want to deal with before we come to the prophecy in Daniel 2. And that is the claim some try to make that the book of Daniel was not written when it says it was written. Uh, They claim that it was actually written much later, they say around 164 B.C. or right around then, at the time of the Maccabean Revolt. And there's one basic reason why they say that. It's very simple. They have to say that. Because if the book of Daniel was written when it says it was written, then the only way to explain the accuracy of Daniel's prophecies is that it was inspired by God himself, the one who knows the end from the beginning. If you, if you, unless you say it was written much later, there simply is no other explanation for how Daniel could have prophesied the things that he did. So they have to say that. You know, for example, if you go online and you type in the, the question, when was the book of Daniel written? Uh, one of the first things that's going to come up uh, for some reason is this uh, article from a PBS uh, frontline, and it begins this way. We know quite a lot about how the book of Daniel came to be written. It was written about 164 BC, probably by several authors. And then they go on and, uh, and talk about that. But they never provide any evidence for saying that. They never provide any reason for saying that. And again, the simple reason is they don't have any reason for saying that other than the fact that they have no way to explain otherwise how Daniel could have prophesied the things that he did. So they say instead of looking forward and prophesying, these authors were looking backward and just recording what had already happened. But there's so many problems with that. First of all, no one uh, from that time ever made that claim from the truly ancient world, going back to like 100 B.C. or 50 B.C. Nobody ever came along at that time and said, oh, this book is a forgery. It was written uh, at the time of the Maccabees. It wasn't written at the time of the Babylonian Empire. There's no no... Uh, ancient, really ancient records like that. The first one who made that claim 
lived around uh, in the uh, 3rd century AD, so almost 400 years after the time that they claimed the book of Daniel was written. And that was a man, I, I can't pronounce his name, Porphyry, possibly was his name, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y. He was the first one who made that claim um, almost uh, close to 500 years after they, they claimed the book was written. So no ancient, really ancient authorities support that claim. Secondly, in the Bible, you have Daniel mentioned three different times, and you almost wonder, the Holy Spirit seems to have made sure Daniel was included in another book of the Bible to verify the authenticity of the book in the Old Testament, that is. And that's in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28, uh, uh, God is mocking the uh, king of Tyre, and he, he mocks him, he says, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. So here, Daniel was a figure who was well known at the time of Ezekiel for his wisdom. And as we mentioned in the previous program, that was a striking characteristic of the prophet Daniel, that God gave him wisdom to understand visions and dreams. So this figure was known at that time. And secondly, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, it says, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the land, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So here, this figure, Daniel, is classified. He's classed with Noah and Job. So he must have been a very, very outstanding figure in the Bible to be classed in that way. Well, if you get rid of the book of Daniel, then where is this Daniel that the Bible talks about? So, so to write him out of the Bible like that is just ridiculous. And, and they just don't have any real basis for doing that. I've, I think one thing they say is that uh, there are some uh, Greek and Persian words in, in the book of Daniel, according to Schofield. And, and so that's why they say it's, uh, it couldn't have been written when it was. Well, Daniel according to the book of Daniel, was serving the kings in, the, in Babylon, in the Gentile world capital at that time, which would have been constantly visited by foreign emissaries, excuse me, foreign emissaries from nations such as Persia and Greece. And so it's not surprising that you would find some uh, Greek and Persian words in his writings. And Schofield also has a note, uh, this is in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. He says, It has often been pointed out that the Chaldaic of Daniel is of high antiquity. In other words, from the time of the Babylonian Empire. And he closes that note with this uh, quotation from uh, Delich, who was quite a, a scholar of ancient languages. He says, The Hebrew of Daniel is closely related to that of Ezekiel. So the language strongly indicates that the book was written when it says it was written, at the time of the Babylonian Empire. But another very important point in this regard is that the Lord Jesus himself strongly affirms the authenticity of Daniel and his prophecies. In Matthew 24, verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolations spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So when if these people who claim that Daniel was written much later by several authors, they're not just undermining the authenticity of the Bible. They're directly rejecting Christ himself when they say this. And they want you to reject Christ himself too in a subtle, uh, unknowing way by getting you to doubt his word, the Bible. So this kind of talk is very, very evil, this notion that the book of Daniel was not written 
when the Bible says it was written. And we need to be very firm to reject it. And there simply is no basis uh, for doubting the fact that it was, it's an authentic book and it was written as a prophecy, probably sometime around 535 or so BC, which is when the, the book uh, ends. We can be fully assured it was written at that time by the prophet Daniel, as Jesus himself tells us. So that will do it for this segment of the program. We'll take a short break and then come back and get into this vision of the great image. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. I want to say a little more about uh, this matter of when the book of Daniel was actually written, because I'm looking at this statement from Frontline, and it just when you read this kind of statement, it just makes you angry. Uh, here it is again. We know quite a lot about how the book of Daniel came to be written. It was written about 164 B.C., probably by several authors. That's just an irresponsible and completely false statement. They have no evidence to back that up, and they don't provide any evidence in that article. There's no reason to assume uh, it was written at that date and uh, by several authors. Uh, when you read that, it's just it's like you're hearing all over again the serpent say, "Yea, hath God said." But this is the kind of statement that uh, some people make. It's just exactly what the Bible says. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter one. It's really so. That's all that statement is. And uh, again, it just makes you angry to, to read that kind of uh, statement and see how that gets passed around. And, and people don't, they think they have some authority and they just don't. And it makes you angry to see how they pretend in that regard. And uh, one other point I, I, I wanted to mention about, uh, you know, the, the problem with this, this view of the late dating of the book of Daniel is even if you say it was written at that late date, about 164 B.C., That still doesn't account for how Daniel chapter 2, the vision there, so accurately predicts the rise and the history of the Roman Empire. That still came after that late date, and they still can't account for that. So even that late date fails to explain all the prophecies in the book of Daniel. So, So again, it's just a bogus theory. It has no basis, in fact, and it's not the type of thing any believer needs to, to listen to. We should simply thank the Lord and bow before his word and worship him. Because again, as I said, the book of Daniel fully proves that he is, the Lord is the one who knows the end from the beginning. So now let's come to Daniel chapter 2 and this vision of the great image. And when we do that, I encourage you, if you can, to open your Bible, if you haven't already, because I'm going to be going through a number of Bible verses, both in Daniel 2 and in other portions of the word that you might want to look up and follow along with. And to repeat what I said earlier, this vision of the great image basically shows us God's arrangement for human government on the earth until the coming of Christ. 
And that's why it's referred to, why Daniel refers to it as the king's matter in his prayer. Or you could also say uh, this refers, this vision refers to the times of the Gentiles, which is the phrase the Lord uses in Luke uh, chapter 21, verse 24. He says, Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's really what this vision is showing us. It's showing us the times of the Gentiles. And it's very striking to note that because this vision of the great image deals with the king's matter or the times of the Gentiles, this section of Daniel is not written in Hebrew. From Daniel 2, verse 4, up until the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, which was the world language of that time. And that really shows you this section is for the Gentiles. That's because God wants to suit his word to his audience, which in this case, in a very real sense, is the Gentiles. And in fact, this may be, I should say, it it seems to be the only prophecy in the entire Bible that is for the Gentiles as such. It's not a prophecy of Christ's redemptive work, which uh, you have in the Bible sometimes that that can help point people to Christ. It's specifically for the Gentiles as such, and that may be the only prophecy in in the entire Bible that's like that. And so one striking characteristic of this prophecy is its simplicity, because you wouldn't expect Gentiles to have a lot of insight into biblical prophecy. So it's presented in a fairly simple form, in a very direct form, which makes it very easy to comprehend. And that's an advantage for us as we go through it, that we can uh, understand this prophecy in a much simpler way than some of the other biblical prophecies. And just to give a little background, uh, Daniel and his three friends, of course, were carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in about 606 BC. And they were put in this training program that the king established for some of the captives who seemed to be promising to be in his civil service so they could be trained to be in that service. And not long after that program began, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he was very troubled by that dream. And so he called in his uh, wise men, his astrologers, uh, and and told them, he wanted them to tell him the dream and then to interpret it for him. Now, some people feel that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream. Others said that he just couldn't understand it. We don't, maybe we don't quite know, but in either case, he wanted these wise men to interpret the dream for him. But they weren't able to do that, and so he became furious, and he gave orders for the wise men of Babylon, all of them, to be destroyed, including Daniel and his three friends. So when Daniel heard about this, he went and he asked the king for some time. And then he went home to uh, where his three friends were, his three companions, and uh, he asked them to pray. And he asked the Lord to uh, show him what this vision was. And the Lord did reveal this dream to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel uh, goes in in Daniel chapter 2 and tells this dream to the king and interprets it for him. And and before we get into that, I want to read Daniel's prayer after God had revealed the dream to him, because this is such a a profound prayer. And you have to remember, Daniel at this time would not have been 20 years old. He's, He's still a very young man, and yet he prays this marvelous prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. Listen to what he says. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for his wisdom For wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. 
He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Uh, reading in the King James, New King James, uh, that has, you have made known to us the king's demand. So that's just a marvelous, marvelous prayer from this young man. And as we stressed in the previous program, the reason why Daniel was able to see this vision was because he had a heart for God. He was for God's purpose. And that's why the Lord revealed this dream to him. And he was, as we also stressed, from a very young age, he was a man of prayer. And you can really see this. So that should inspire us to, to, to realize, even from a young age, the believers who are very young should aspire to really enter into a deeper relationship with the Lord. Daniel, as a young man, had such a relationship. And it should be an inspiration for us to enter into that kind of relationship as well. So then Daniel goes in before the king and lets him know that he can interpret the dream for him. He can recount the dream, I should say, and interpret it for him. And so, in uh, beginning in verse 31, he recounts the dream for him. Verse 31, that's the verse where he says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. And as we said before, this is man's view of human government. Man thinks human government is just so uh, awesome and full of splendor. That's man's view. And then Daniel goes on, and, and he recounts the rest of the dream. Uh, the head of this great image was of fine gold, gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze. Then it had legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then a stone comes and smashes this image on its feet and completely destroys it so that it's completely swept away. So that was the dream that Daniel had, or, or sorry, that King Nebuchadnezzar had in which Daniel recounted to him. And then in verse 36, Daniel begins to interpret the dream. And verses 36 and 37 are very, very significant. We'll spend some time on these verses uh, to give uh, the import of what these verses are really saying. Very, very significant here. Uh, verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. In verse 38, and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now, to understand the real significance of what Daniel is saying here, you really have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and how God created man and why God created man. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, 26 and 27, he made man in his image and likeness and he said, let him have dominion. So God created man in order to rule over the earth on his behalf. And at that time, in Genesis chapter 1, man was to be directly under the ruling of God. And because of that, he would have authority over the earth as a whole. But, of course, man fell. Adam and Eve fell. And because of that, man, to a large extent, lost the dominion he was supposed to have. Not entirely, but to a large extent. We don't have that dominion today that God originally intended for us because we're just not capable of ruling as we should once we became fallen. And so we lost so much of the dominion God wanted us to have. But we still have some of that dominion. So after the fall, instead of being directly under 
God's ruling. God put man under the ruling of his conscience. So before the fall, that's called the dispensation of innocence. That's the the term, uh, the term rather, the uh, dispensational teachers of the Bible use for that that age. Prior to the fall was the age of innocence. After the fall, you have the age of conscience, where man was to be under the ruling of his conscience, and that lasted up until the time of Noah. But then in Genesis uh, chapter six, verse five. Uh, by that time, man had completely failed under the ruling of his conscience. Uh, Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the dispensation of conscience had failed. Man had failed to live under his conscience in a way that enabled there to be some kind of order on the earth. And so God sent the flood to destroy the earth at that time. So after the dispensation of conscience, you have the dispensation of human government. Because after the flood, God made this covenant with Noah. And that's in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. In, this, in these verses, that's where he sets up the principle of human government on the earth. He says, To Noah, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, and from the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So that's the principle of human government. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God was giving men the authority to rule over other men and to execute justice in order to maintain some kind of order upon the earth. So from Genesis chapter 9 up until Genesis 11, you have what the dispensationalists call the dispensation of human government, or the dispensation of government. And now for the first time in this section of the Bible, that's where you uh, have the mention of different nations on the earth, because man was under the authority and ruled over by other men. So first man was to be ruled by God, man failed by falling, then man was to be ruled by his conscience, that also failed, so now man was to be ruled by government. That's a continued step in the fall, but God wants some kind of ruling on the earth. Well, that also failed, because in Genesis chapter 11, you had mankind as a whole rebel against God by building up this tower of Babel to reach into heaven. And when God saw that, that's when he scattered man over the earth and confused the language of mankind. And so they couldn't be one, and so they could not be quite so capable of the evil as they were before. And at that point, God gave up on the human race as a whole. That was the end of the dispensation of human government. And instead, in Genesis chapter 12, he called Abraham out to follow him and to be the father of the called race. And in the Old Testament, of course, that's the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, his descendants, spiritually speaking, become the church. Physically speaking, in the Old Testament, though, it's the nation of Israel. So at that time, God was working through the nation of Israel to bring in his authority to the earth. Well, that lasted for about 1,500 years. But then the nation of Israel also fell. And of course, this is known as the dispensation of law. Israel fell into rebellion against God and disobedience and eventually into a a terrible state of idolatry. And so God had uh, to judge the nation of Israel. And he carried them away from the good land, as he said he would, In Leviticus 26 and in uh, Deuteronomy 28, we've covered that uh, 
yeah, a couple of programs ago, those remarkable prophecies about the nation of Israel. That's what God said he was going to do. He said, when you fall into idolatry, I am going to take you away from the good land. And you're going to dwell in the land of your enemies. Well, that's exactly what happened. Of course, that prophecy was fulfilled. The ten tribes were carried away by Assyria around 720 B.C., the northern tribes. And the southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah, along with Benjamin, Eventually, they were uh, carried away around 586 B.C. It was in three stages beginning in 606 and eventually completed with the destruction of Jerusalem around 586 B.C. So what happened after that with, with to God's ruling authority? Well, that's what Daniel chapter 2 is showing us. What it's saying is God had now given that authority back to the Gentile nations. Specifically, at that time, to the empire, rather to the kingdom of Babylon, and to Nebuchadnezzar as the head of Babylon. That's what these verses are telling us. Uh, and I'll re- let me read them again in, in the light of this uh, history. Verse 37, you, are, you, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. 38, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So now the sovereignty over the earth has reverted from Israel back to the Gentile nations. And what this image shows us is that is where the sovereignty has remained ever since. And that is exactly what has happened. Until very recently, Israel wasn't even a sovereign nation again. Until 1948, Of course, even today, they still really depend so much upon the protection of the United States, and they still don't have uh, full control over Jerusalem. You still have, of course, the uh, Dome of the Rock there where the, the temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem. And so that's the real significance of this vision. It's saying the sovereignty today has been committed to these four empires successively. And that's why... Uh, at, the, at this time, of course, it's very interesting. You have Daniel, the prophet, stationed by God in Babylon, the Gentile world capital. You had Ezekiel, another prophet of God, among the captives in Babylon. But you also had, a little bit earlier, you had the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem as the city was under siege by the Babylonians. It just seemed God had arranged everything to give the the right message to his people in the right place at the right time. So in Jeremiah, I'm going to read, uh, this is Jeremiah 27, beginning in verse 5. You see very much of this same thought. Uh, Jeremiah says, 27.5, I have made the earth the man and the beast that are on the ground by, by my great power and my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. God gives it to whom it seems proper to him. Very significant statement. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be, this is verse 8, it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon and which will not put its yoke under the, and will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, with the famine and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. So Jeremiah is saying, 
Israel, you don't have the sovereignty anymore. It's over. You rebelled against God. God has taken that away from you and he's giving it, given it into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't rebel against what God has done. Submit to what God has done in this new arrangement. Humble yourself. And he warned them over and over again to, to submit themselves to what God has, had arranged by giving the earthly sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar at that time. But of course, Zedekiah and those with him refused to do that. And eventually, as a result, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. So again, the significance of this dream is it's showing us God has committed the earthly sovereignty to these four nations. Uh, sorry, to these four empires, one after the other. Now, of course, these nations do not have a direct role in carrying out God's purpose like the nation of Israel did. But under God's arrangement, he uses these nations to enable him to provide the environment in which that purpose can be carried out. First, by bringing Jesus to the earth the first time. And then secondly, through the church, by arranging to bring the Lord to the earth the second time. And so that's what we need to be clear about this vision. It's saying these are the nations to whom, the empires to whom God has given his authority to rule over the earth, each in turn, according to this, this vision. And I appreciate what, what Pember has to say about this matter. He says, their sovereignty, that is the sovereignty of these nations, is earthly. It has failed once already, and that's a reference to, to Genesis chapter 11. And they are now nearing the end of their second trial. And what he means by that is, uh, he goes on, in the times of the early Babylonian monarchy, they were permitted to exercise dominion. Again, that refers to what happened in Genesis 11. And the result was a general revolt against God. Yet again, because of Israel's idolatry, the supremacy reverted to them in the person of Nebuchadnezzar and has ever since remained in their hands. So that's how, that's how he sums up the significance of this vision. And that's exactly what's happened from that time until today. You see these four empires that were prophesied in these visions, in this vision of the great image, have arisen to rule over the earth. So after Nebuchadnezzar as a head of gold, you had the Medo-Persian empire. That's the, the silver. That's verse 39. Daniel says, still talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So the second kingdom was the kingdom of silver, and that's the chest and the arms. It's very significant because the Medo-Persian Empire was a combination of two na nations, the Medes and the Persians. So that matches the two arms that are joined together at the chest. Again, this prophecy has been fulfilled in just every detail ever since then. And after them, uh, after that kingdom, it says in verse 39, a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth shall arise. And that refers to the kingdom of uh, Greece, the, the under specifically under the Alexandrian Empire, which conquered the Persian Empire. And that there's a reference to that specifically in Daniel chapter 8. It tells us uh, these two nations are the Medo-Persian Empire and then the uh, Empire of Alexander. And that's chapter 8, verses uh, 20 and 21, if you want to look those up. And then we come to the fourth empire. And that's the empire, as Daniel explains, is going to be uh, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And in uh, verse 40 of D Daniel chapter 2, he says, The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. 
This is a reference to the Roman Empire, which really was characterized by iron and just crushed and broke everything else in pieces. And the striking thing about this, first of all, is that this part of the image is the two legs. And of course, in its latter history, the Roman Empire was indeed divided into the eastern and western halves. So again, you see this remarkable vision being fulfilled in human history. And then Daniel goes on and, it's, and says, Whereas ye saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as ye saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And this is, this is really significant. It's the feet of this image that are partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, to understand this image here, you have to understand that today we really are still living in the age of the Roman Empire, especially in terms of this vision, because Western civilization, including the United States, are basically the product of the Roman Empire. We have arisen out of the Roman Empire. And so, in a very real sense, we are the extension of the Roman Empire today. Now, in a more literal sense, the Roman Empire will be reconstituted at, at the end of this age, right at the very end, right be, as the Antichrist rises up. But even today, you can say we are still living in the age of the Roman Empire because Western civilization has always been produced out of the Roman Empire. And when you consider it in that way, then the, the, the iron and the clay being uh, mixed in the feet is very, very significant. So you have to ask, first of all, what, what, is the, what do the iron and the clay signify? Well, the iron in the Bible signifies ruling authority. That's Revelation 2.27, where the Lord uh, tells, speaks of the overcomers. He says, The overcomers shall rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. So there you see iron signifies ruling authority. Well, what's the clay? The clay refers to the mass of the people. Uh, Isaiah 64, verse 8. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. And in the New Testament, an even clearer reference is uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of for honor and another for dishonor? So here the clay in these verses signifies humanity and the substance from which humanity is made. So it really signifies the mass of the people. So when you put these two together, what you see is the principle of humanity being mixed together with ruling authority. And what that really means is it's the democratic principle, the mass of humanity being mixed together with the principle of ruling authority. And that signifies the mixture of democracy and authoritarian rule in more recent times that we've had ever since the time of the French Revolution. And let me read Pember's comment on this. It's very, very striking. He says, It was not until the period of the French Revolution that the democratic element came irresistibly to the front. And from that time we have seen it continually increasing in strength in all countries and under many names, bearing much the same significance as our own ominously changing terms, liberalism, radicalism, socialism, anarchism. So up until the time of the French Revolution, the ruling principle uh, in the European countries was always 
autocratic. It was always the, the ruling of the kings over the people. But at the time of the French Revolution, the French people threw off the monarchy and established a kind of form of democracy. And from that time, as Pember says, the democratic principle has been coming stronger and stronger. That's the principle of the clay. You still have the iron there. You still have much of uh, the authoritarian rule. But now you do have also the principle of the clay. So again, you see how this prophecy has just been exactly fulfilled. It foretold that at the end times, at the time of the end, you would see the democratic principle arise going together with the autocratic principle to some extent, even though these two things don't really mix together, just like, as Daniel says in this vision, just like iron and clay don't mix together. Again, it's just breathtaking to consider how how the Bible foretold all of this happening. Really something to, and it should just make us bow and worship the Lord for, for what he's done. But there's something else we need to realize from this vision when we consider this prophecy of the democratic principle, which is where is this uh, prophecy? Where does the clay come in in the picture of this image? And it's at the feet. Well, what does that show us about where we are? Again, this, this vision was given about 2,500 years ago. The principle of the democratic, uh, the democratic principle only comes in at the very end, at the feet. So that shows us that today we are very, very close to the end of human history. Because the clay and the iron are only mixed together at the, in the very end of the very last stage of this great image. And that should make us be much more sober about our seeking of the Lord today because human history is almost coming to an end. Well, the last thing about this image, of course, is uh, when Daniel recounts the dream, he says, uh, he's watching this, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the image gets completely swept away. And of course, this refers to the Lord's coming and is striking the image on its feet which is what is going to happen in the future. This part of the, the dream has not yet been fulfilled. But because so much of that dream has already been fulfilled in every detail, we should have the strong assurance this is going to happen. The Lord is coming back. He's going to strike this image and, and blow it away, just like the, uh, the, the, the chaff on a summer threshing floor, just like a wind blows that away until nothing is left. That is going to happen. And that's what Daniel says uh, in chapter 2, verses... 44, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's, that's the end of this image. What's the future of this image? It's to become as if it had never existed. And as Daniel uh, explained when he was telling the dream to the king, he says, uh, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That is going to happen when the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom on the earth. This mountain fills the whole earth. Praise the Lord for that. So our hope, what we're looking for today, is for that stone to come and strike this image so the Lord's kingdom can be established on the earth. So I hope we can really have a clear view of this image and what it shows us about what God has arranged and what it shows us about human history in the past that's already taken place and what the future will be in human history as we await the Lord's return. 
and look for his return to establish his kingdom on the earth. And seeing this, again, will very much strengthen us and establish us in our Christian faith. So very, very worthwhile to spend some time praying over these verses and really entering into an appreciation of this prophecy before the Lord. And so I I hope this consideration has been helpful for you and would even encourage you to spend some time on your own in Daniel chapter 2 to look at this image and really consider it for yourself and really be deeply impressed with what this vision shows us about the situation of the earth today. So that's going to do it for this edition of the program. As the Lord allows, we hope to be back with you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.